the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This podcast is brought to you by Dr. Kirk Elliott, PhD in an uncertain economy. If you're looking for wealth management solutions and financial advice, go to KirkElliottPhD.com and make an appointment today. Coming up, a special episode on George Orwell. I want to provide some insight into police states around the world, including the emerging American police state, through an introduction to Orwell's work. I'll give you some background on Orwell's politics and writing and focus on his two dystopian masterpieces, Animal Farm and 1984. I want to argue that he brilliantly foresaw how police states could emerge even in liberal democratic societies like our own. Hey, if you're watching on Rumble or listening on Apple, Google, or Spotify, please subscribe to my channel. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. America needs this voice. The times are crazy. In a time of confusion, division, and lies, we need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. On the eve of the release of our new film, Police State, I thought it might be interesting to do a special episode on somebody who foresaw a lot about police states. Well, someone who had experience of police states in the sense that uh, George Orwell, writing in the nineteen late 1930s, the 1940s, could obviously see police states in the Soviet Union. Stalin had a police state. Of course, in Germany, Hitler had a police state. There were, at that time, other police states in the world. But the genius of Orwell was to be able to see that the police state phenomenon was not confined to tyrannical societies or even communist societies. He saw that there was a connection between socialism, communism, and police states, but he thought it's possible that the West, the so-called free world, Britain, the United States, would also move in that direction. And that has now happened. It didn't happen then, but it's happened now, well, I guess 70 years later. And Orwell is the great uh, diagnostician, the great prophet of this uh, development. So I thought that by looking at Orwell and his kind of marvelous foresight, because who would have thought uh, in the middle of the last century that you could uh, anticipate these developments with such kind of um, eerie precision? When we think of a lot of the famous Orwell phrases, doublethink, newspeak, um, the uh, inversions of uh, war is peace, freedom is slavery – uh, Orwell gave us all that, and that's uh, a kind of intellectual apparatus or furniture, a sort of lens through which we can now see things that are happening in our own society uh, at a time when the distinction between free societies and unfree societies is getting is getting a lot more a lot more blurred. Now, um, Orwell was a um, a very interesting fellow because for most of his life he was. 
a man of the left. And um, in some ways, this is an oddity because you have uh, Orwell who praises socialism, at least in his early career. Now, later in his career, he never fully gives up on socialism, but it becomes very clear that he spends more of his time as a critic of socialism than as a champion of it. But nevertheless, it is important to realize that he hung on to that left identity. And I think it's because he thought that that was an identity that aligned with the ordinary fellow, with the working man. And and this is really something that Orwell sympathized with all his life. Um, very interesting for us today because we are living at a time where the same working class which traditionally was democratic in this country. Uh, it was the heart of the FDR coalition. Basically, the white working class kept FDR in office for four terms. But the same working class is now moving uh, toward the Republican Party. Uh, and not just the white working class. We see it also with the black working class and the Hispanic and Latino working class as, as well. Now, um, Orwell's concept of a police state is... Uh, something that is different than what we have now. But Orwell was very insightful in being able to see that there were two developments that were pushing toward police states all over the world. And the first development is ideology, and the second is technology. So let me say a kind of introductory word about each. Ideology is a kind of framework, a doctrine, a system of ideas that justifies or can be used to justify tyranny. Uh, ideology can also be used to justify cruelty because you define people and put them into certain categories. If you put somebody, for example, into a category of oppressor, well, he's an oppressor. You don't have to really care about him. And even if he is in a hard way, even if he is um, suffering, you're like, well, that's okay. That's actually a good thing because that's a really bad guy. And the other aspect is technology. And Orwell was able to see the ways in which technology could establish systems of surveillance. Uh, he understood, for example, the power of the media in generating uh, propaganda. Uh, he understood that the, the television would be the precursor. I don't, he obviously didn't foresee uh, the internet, the World Wide Web. Uh, but nevertheless, he understood that there were advancing forms of media that would now allow governments and also centralized states to maintain uh, tighter controls over human beings than had ever been possible uh, before. Uh, in the old days, they could come after you, but you could run away, and it wasn't all that easy to even find you. But Orwell understood that in the future, running away, in a sense, would become impossible. One of the themes, of course, of 1984 is that Winston, who is the, the rebel, the guy who won't go along with the police state, is hunted down. He tries to get away. He thinks that he is alone. He thinks that he is undetected, but no... They know exactly where he is. They're able to get him. And ultimately, they're able to subjugate not just his body, but I mean this, and this is the chilling part of Orwell, but also his soul. 
Israel is at war because of senseless, horrifying attacks from brutal terrorists targeting innocent civilians, including women and children. You and I simply have to do something to help the victims of these attacks. And this is why I'm partnering with the International Federation of Christians and Jews. This is how we can do our part to help. We need to do what we can to help children and families hit by the war in Israel. It's an urgent need, and it's the right thing to do. Help Israel in its darkest hour. Phone your donation to 800-249-0606. Again, that's 800-249-0606. Your emergency gift will help the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews save lives and provide critical essentials needed right now. The number again to call, 800 800- Two four nine zero six zero six. We are living at a very um, remarkable time in which the classic features of police states are now all evident and, and apparent here in America. So think about police states around the world, North Korea, China, Uh, I guess to some degree, Russia, Cuba, Venezuela. Think of the old Soviet Union and the Soviet Empire, so places like East Germany and, um, and uh, Romania. Well, what is the, what were the common characteristics and what are the common characteristics of these police states? Well, if we had to enumerate, we would say they have, they had mass surveillance of citizens. They had systematic uh, censorship of opinions and so it effectively no freedom of speech. They tended, uh, for the most part to be anti-religion. Sometimes they would use the vocabulary of religion, but they sought to undermine the church, imp- imprison priests and so on. They also had, uh, forms of, uh, heavy indoctrination in the schools and in the universities. Uh, mind-numbing propaganda through the media. Some of these states actually had propaganda ministers like Goebbels in uh, Nazi Germany. They also, police states tend to be one-party states. And um, by one-party states, I mean that they don't allow effective opposition. I'm not saying they don't allow opposition at all. And I'm not even saying that they don't allow elections because there are elections in China today. There are elections in Iran but there are elections from a pre-screened group of candidates and any opposition that is permitted is subordinate to and, and uh, deferent to ultimately an extension of the regime itself. Uh, police states criminalize dissent. They have political prisoners and wow, go down the list I just mentioned. We have all of that now in the United States. And so Orwell is our man. Orwell is our man because he got there first. Orwell predicted this, or at least maybe prediction is wrong. Orwell wasn't writing a, unlike Marx, Marx was sort of like, I'm predicting that there will be a working class revolution and it's going to happen first in Germany and then in, in England and then elsewhere in Europe. And so this was, Marx thought he was some sort of a, um, modern version of the Old Testament prophets, but not Orwell. Orwell is issuing a kind of warning. 
He is creating us an imaginary dystopia. And he's saying, look, we could get from here to there if we don't watch out. In that sense, the purpose of Orwell's work is very similar to the purpose of our film. It is to issue a kind of warning. I uh, say on the website in a quotation that I uh, came up with for the film that I feel a little bit like the animal that sees a predator's moving in the, movement in the trees, and I'm trying to alert the rest of the herd. And at a time when the rest of the herd, most other people are indifferent. They're just grazing like the antelope or the wildebeest. They're like, oh, I don't know, it's probably just the wind. Or even, well, maybe there's a predator, but he's not going to land on my back. He'll probably get somebody else. So there is this uh, unwillingness to really believe that these things are possible. And, and you can imagine if we go back uh, 70 years or so, how unwilling people would be when encountering Orwell. I mean, think about it. The United States um, was uh, allied with Britain and, of course, the fighters of the Free French led by Charles de Gaulle. And these people thought of themselves as champions of freedom against tyranny. So in a way, they could read Orwell and go, oh, Orwell, yeah, we, we know. You're, you're actually writing about our enemies. You're writing about the bad guys. You're writing about the Nazis. Now, the issue of the Soviet Union was a little awkward because, of course, the Soviet Union was allied with the United States. The Soviet Union was part of the anti-Nazi coalition. So that was a little bit of a tricky one. But nevertheless, you can see that for people looking at Orwell's writings in the 30s and 40s, now, Orwell began some of these works. His early works, of course, go back to the 1930s. And I've got a bunch of them in front of me. And I'm going to say a little bit about each of them. But his two perhaps most famous, his most mature works, which is Animal Farm and then 1984, uh, were begun. Well, one of them, Animal Farm, was begun in the late 30s, published, I think, around 1944. And uh, and the work uh, 1944 and then 1984, perhaps Orwell's most famous work, was published in 1949 uh, after the war. But think of it, 1949, everybody is enjoying the kind of flush of freedom uh, of, of the abundance of um, uh, of American uh, opportunity and the expansion of the American economy at that time the American GDP the gross national domestic product was something like one third of the entire world so the United States was just riding high there was an atmosphere of optimism and of progress and then right in the middle of that here comes Orwell with this sort of dark dystopian vision and I think a lot of people probably said wait, didn't we just defeat all that? Didn't, didn't the good guys beat the bad guys? Didn't the party of freedom triumph over the party of slavery? And Orwell's warning says, well, what happens if the party of freedom becomes the party of slavery? Mike Lindell has a passion to help you get the best sleep of your life. He didn't just stop with the MyPillow pillow. He also created the Giza Dream bed sheets. Now, we have these in our home. We love them. The sheets look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep. That's crucial for your overall health. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza. It's ultra soft and breathable, but also extremely durable. And Mike's latest deal, sale of the year for a limited time, 50% off the Giza Dream Sheets. Marking prices down as low as $29.98, depending on the size. Go to MyPillow.com, enter promo code Dinesh. There you'll find not just this offer, but also deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, the pillows, the mattress topper, the MyPillow kitchen towel sets, and so much more. The number to call, 800-876-0227. 
800-876-0227. Once again, it's 800-876-0227. Or go to mypillow.com. Don't forget to use the promo code D-I-N-E-S-H Dinesh. I want to talk a little bit about Orwell and his early work. Now, um, George Orwell's name was uh, not George Orwell. It was Eric Blair. And uh, George Orwell was his pseudonym. It was his writer's name. And, and of course, that's the name by which he is now known and famous. And if you look at his face, it's like, that's George Orwell. Just worth knowing that there was an Eric Blair behind George Orwell. And this is always interesting when writers do this, because in a sense, what they've done is they've created a separate narrative identity. And you can ask a question if you're just studying Orwell's work, like, is there a difference between George Orwell and Eric Blair? Not a topic I'm going to go into now, but just a question I want to raise. Now, in Orwell's early work, and I've got here three of his early books, um, Down and Out in Paris and London, uh, Keep the Aspidistra Flying. What's an aspidistra? It's a kind of a plant. And I'll get to that in a moment. And then uh, George Orwell's uh, Homage to uh, Catalonia which is an account of Orwell's personal involvement in the Spanish Civil War. There are several other Orwell works, uh, The Road to Wigan Pier and others. I don't own them, so I didn't bring them today. Uh, but um, the point is that Orwell did quite a bit of writing as a, as a journalist, as an observer, before he got to his major police state themes. And... Um, so let's start a little bit with, let's start with Down Out in Paris and London. This is where Orwell gets the idea to essentially become a really poor guy in order to discover what it's like uh, to live under poverty. Now, Orwell was, in fact, kind of poor, but not really. Uh, he once described himself as a um, member of the upper lower middle class. <laughs> Think about that. Uh, so what he's saying is that he was not middle class. His family was below middle class. But uh, even though he was below middle class, he wasn't really destitute. He wasn't really poor. Of the lower middle class group, he was kind of at the upper end. And he's giving you here, of course, the um, a hint of the very highly stratified English class society in which people fall into very definite uh, categories. Uh, Orwell um, goes to, um, first of all, he dresses like a homeless guy. And there's a very funny scene somewhat toward the middle of uh, Down and Out in Paris and London where he's he's walking around and he's looking in these windows of restaurants and shops. And at one point, he's really shocked because he looks in the window and he sees this scary homeless guy and he recoils as if to say, is there somebody? And then he realizes that it's him. In other words, he's allowed himself to sort of run down so much that he doesn't even recognize himself. He's got, of course, a thick beard and mustache at that point, and he's wearing rags. And so this is a kind of moment of self-recognition for Orwell that not that that's who he is, because, of course, there is a very curious intellectual George Orwell. But he's saying that's kind of how I've presented myself to society, to the world. That's how I appear to other people. That's what they think when they when they see me. Uh, what I got out of this book, um, Down Out in Paris and London, is that Orwell really sympathizes with ordinary people, and uh, also he doesn't romanticize them. This is really important because there are a lot of people who will romanticize the proletariat, 
and they romanticize, you know, the black criminal and they romanticize the, the looter and they romanticize the terrorist. And uh, they romanticize these people because they don't see them as people. They don't see them as people who are making bad choices or doing really bad things. They see them as sort of products of forces of history. Oh yeah, he's uh, that. That's the that's the liberation of the oppressed. Oh no, this is a guy. He's he's a victim of systematic racism, and that's really why he went out and killed those people. No, this is not Orwell. Orwell says that poor people are. Um, unimpressive as a group. They are, they are, uh, petty. They will do bad things that other people wouldn't do. I mean, think about it. Uh, a poor guy will stab another guy for like a hundred bucks. Uh, would you do it? No. Would I do it? No. Why? Well, in part, because a hundred dollars doesn't mean enough to us. Um, you, you might find someone else who'd say, well, I'll do it for a million dollars. But for the poor guy, a uh, hundred dollars is worth it. And, uh, Debbie and I sometimes watch these crime shows. We've seen people who have been murdered for like two hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, so, so that's Orwell. He, he's telling you, do not romanticize anyone. Uh, human beings are human beings, whatever kind of place they occupy on the, on the spectrum. And then in the other Orwell work, Keep the Aspidistra Flying is also about the struggling middle class. In this case, it's not the poor. And, um, the middle class guy we're talking about. His name is uh, Gordon Comstock, and he's a guy who's struggling, but he's not struggling because he can't get a job. He can't get a job. He can get a job, but he doesn't like working because he's against sort of bourgeois culture. And so he goes, no, 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 I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to join the rat race. I'm not going to I'm not going to do the same kind of conformist types of, you know, mechanical tasks where I do the same thing every single day. He goes, no, I, I, I refuse to be a member of that class. And so he goes, that's the money world. I want to have no part of it. And, um, and, um, in the end, he discovers, you know what? Working for a living is not so bad. And, uh, you're, you're, it's not selfish and you are looking after your family and you are making a, you are helping to, to keep, you are part of the glue. The middle class is the glue that holds together a society. So the aspidistra is a kind of measly plant that you have in your kitchen that uh, can sometimes wilt and fall down. But for Orwell, it's a symbol. Keeping the aspidistra flying is is another way of saying keeping the flag flying. And what his point is that it's the middle class that keeps a society healthy, that keeps a society holding itself up, that that upholds the dignity of a society. So that's the message of keep the aspidistra flying. It is two cheers, perhaps not three cheers, but two cheers for the middle class. Debbie and I made a New Year's resolution. Let's lose some weight. And thankfully, PhD weight loss came to our rescue. You can see the result. Debbie's lost 24 pounds. I've lost 27. We're thrilled. We're both now on maintenance. The program is based on science and nutrition. No injections, no pills, no long hours in the gym, no severe calorie restriction, just good, sound, scientifically proven nutrition. It's so simple. They make it easy by providing 80% of your food at no additional cost. They tell you when and what to eat 
And guess what? You can do this without ever being hungry. The founder, Dr. Ashley Lucas, has her PhD in chronic disease and sports nutrition. She's also a registered dietitian. She helps people lose weight and most important, maintain that weight loss for life. So if you're ready to take the step of losing weight like Debbie and I have, call PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition. Here's the number, 864-644-1900. You can also find them online at myphdweightloss.com. The number again to call, 864-644-1900. I want to talk in this segment about Animal Farm, but before I do, uh, just a short word about Orwell's work, Homage to Catalonia. Orwell joined the uh, resistance to Franco in the Spanish Civil War. And Orwell describes this as him fighting fascism. <laughs> now, when I first read Homage to Catalonia, I thought, well, this is really ridiculous because Franco was not a fascist. Uh, fascists are on the left. Fascists are anti-church. Uh, fascists are uh, ideolo- ideological. Franco was a traditional dictator. He came out of the military. He didn't like the fact that Spain was going communist. And so he established a kind of dictatorial regime after he won the Civil War. Uh, Franco was a devout uh, Catholic. He had a sort of traditional Catholic order, if you will, in which the church was preferred. The enemies of the church were hunted down. So nothing could be Franco was in no way a fascist. And yet, in this book, Orwell calls him a fascist. Orwell thought of himself as fighting fascism. And I can only imagine that this was the young George Orwell. This is Orwell as a journalist, and he was caught up in the spirit of, you know, we're fighting the fascists. And, um, and we're fighting for Republican values. Now, Part of the discovery of this work is that Orwell sees soon enough that the people fighting, quote, on his own side are far from lovers of freedom. They have a tyrannical streak themselves. They also tend to try to um, um, smash down other factions that are also on the left and accuse them of being fascist. So this is the, the fratricidal tendency of the left in which everybody is competing to be the most far left. And uh, Orwell himself is fighting in a faction uh, called the PUM, the P-O-U-M. That's just an acronym, but it refers to a sort of Trotskyite um, faction that wants a mild form of socialism, but is not Stalinist, doesn't really want the hardcore uh, Stalinism that ultimately became consolidated. But then there's another faction that represents that. So basically what Orwell realizes fighting for the left in the Spanish Civil War is that there's a lot of bad stuff going on on both sides. The left is hardly the party of virtue. There are tyrants on the left that would not hesitate to themselves establish a Franco-style tyranny, which would differ in some respects, but in a way be no less crushing to the spirit of the Spaniards. And this is Orwell, in a sense, recognizing that a lot of the tyranny that he wants to write about is going to be the tyranny of the left. It's not the tyranny of a... Um, a Christian order or some kind of um, inquisitorial medieval order. No, it's the tyranny of socialism and it's the tyranny of communism. And that sets up 
the theme of Animal Farm. And Animal Farm discusses many of the same themes as 1984. And in a way, it is not less of a dark work than 1984, but it has a, a playful tone to it that is at least initially um, misleading because you think, oh, wow, well, this is just a, an animal story. I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a kind of analogy here between animals and human beings, but there's a charming aspect to the story. And, um, and, and then the story just continues to get uh, gloomier and darker and more insidious. So really what you're, what's happening is that human villainy is creeping into these animals. And the, the, the really bad guys here are the pigs because the animals conduct a revolution. They overthrow man who is their great oppressor. And this is Orwell kind of having fun. And the animals, you know, it's the whole, the work starts off with this big speech in which an old horse basically says that, that man is the great exploiter. He says, uh, he says, look at the life of an animal. We are like horrible. We, we, we don't have enough to eat. We can't go wherever we want. And he goes, is that because there's a scarcity of food on the earth? No. He goes, it's because of man. Man takes all the food. Man rules us with an iron fist. And so man is the problem. Nearly the whole of the produce of our labor is stolen from us by human beings. And then he goes, and even the miserable lives we lead are not allowed to reach their natural span because so many animals, of course, are killed uh, and then eaten by humans. So the tyranny of human beings is the opening. So here's Orwell basically going, okay, we've got this working class revolt, but in this case, it's a revolt against man. And sure enough, man is overthrown and the animals take over. But that's when the plot thickens because that is when Orwell begins to show how some animals use the same rhetoric of revolution and putting down the bad guys and fighting for the oppressed to establish their own tyranny. In this case, it's the tyranny of the pigs. And the pigs are become no less cruel than, than, than the old, you know, human oppressor. And at the very end of the, of the book, um, Orwell says that the creatures looked from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again. But already it was impossible to say which was which. In other words, the leaders of the revolution who thought, who claimed to be doing good, overthrowing the bad guy, they become the bad guy. They become the oppressor that they themselves used to warn against. Uh, and this is the message of Animal Farm. Debbie and I are on a really good health journey, but we still struggle to eat enough fruits, veggies, and fiber. And, well, those are a requirement. Now, lucky for us, we discovered Balance of Nature. And what better way to get all your fruits and veggies plus fiber than with Balance of Nature? This is Balance of Nature's fruits and veggies in a capsule, so easy to take. Made from fresh whole produce, the produce is powdered after an advanced vacuum cold process, which stabilizes the maximum nutrient content. And this is Balance of Nature's Fiber and Spice, a proprietary blend of fiber and 12 spices for overall and digestive health. Join Debbie and me. Start your journey to better health right now. Call 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com. You'll get 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. Again, that's balanceofnature.com or you can call 800-246-8751. Get 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. I'm talking about George Orwell's Animal Farm 
And uh, one of the uh, virtues of Animal Farm is that it shows us how a police state comes into existence. Uh, by the way, in, in our movie, Police State, we have, after the opening section, which raises questions like, is the United States becoming a police state? And um, is the police state coming from the left or from the right? We have a section on the origins of the police state. How did it get started? And... Um, that is, by the way, not something that Orwell covers in 1984. If you uh, know 1984, it begins with this guy, Winston, and it begins with uh, announcements for something called Hate Week. And uh, Winston uh, is somebody who is sort of beginning to realize that this is not something he wants to be part of. He is uh, fomenting in his own mind, and, and this time he thinks he's alone, a rebellion against hate week. But the, my point is, the police state is already there. Big Brother is already in full control. In fact, the extent of the control we'll discover later. But in Animal Farm, you don't start off with that. In Animal Farm, as I mentioned, you start off with this um, this passionate speech by the horse, the old horse Boxer. Boxer goes, my, my life is coming to an end. I'm going to be signing out soon. I'm 12 years old. I don't have much longer to live. Let me give you an important message that you need to kind of keep with you. And that is, let's we need to figure realize who our enemy is. It's man. We may not succeed in overthrowing him, but we got to remember that's the guy we would overthrow if we could. And then interestingly, the animals are able to, to pull it off. Uh, and the pigs are part of that coalition. So in, in stage one of the rebellion, the, there's a unified resistance by, and I think Orwell here is thinking of the working class. So for Orwell, the man is the, um, is the, the bourgeois, is the, the capitalist class. And the animals are the working class. So you can see here that Orwell is still hanging on to his kind of youthful socialist um, framework in which there is a revolution and, and you, you get no sense from Orwell that the original revolution is bad. In fact, he thinks it's very good. But, and the revolution is, is done in the name of the oppressed now seeking to have not only freedom for themselves, but also equality for themselves. Because remember, equality is a very important socialist value. And so the idea is that they are now going to take over and they're going to rule in the interest of all of them. They're, they're going to sort of share the benefits of, of freedom and of their newfound prosperity. And then as we come to, there's a slow usurpation of power by the pigs. Uh, the pigs are not only able to, because think about it, the pigs aren't that strong by themselves. They could probably be defeated by the other animals, but they're able to recruit animals to do work for them. For example, they're able to hire these big dogs who become their, their security guards. And so the pigs are able to... Um, I don't know if weasel is the right way because that's a different animal, but weasel their way into power. And then they begin to rewrite history. They begin to produce mind-numbing propaganda. So you can see here the techniques of the police state are coming right into play, even in Orwell's parable 
animal farm. And then, of course, the great slogan toward the end, which the animals look, because they all say, well, wait a minute, we, we thought we were equal. What happened to equality? And and then they encounter the slogan devised by the pigs, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And here we have Orwell brilliantly stating the paradox of socialist equality. There's always a ruling class. And think about police states. Many of these police states are established in the name of equality. Say the police state in Venezuela or in Cuba or even in Soviet Russia. And yet there was always and there is always a kind of ruling class in Russia, it was called the nomenclatura. There are names for it in other places as well. These are the people who live high on the hog. They are the chavistas in Venezuela. They are above the law. They can do whatever they want because they know that the police state is not going to come after them. Why? Because they're running the police state. If aches and pains are your problem, Relief Factor is your remedy, and you just have to try it to find out. Debbie and I started taking Relief Factor about two years ago, and we've seen a huge difference in our joints, nothing short of amazing. Aches and pains are totally gone thanks to this 100% drug-free solution called Relief Factor. How does it work? Relief Factor supports your body's fight against inflammation. That's the source of aches and pains. More than 1 million people have tried Relief Factor, and about 70%, the huge majority, have gone on to order more. Debbie's a true believer. She can now do the exercises that for a long time she wasn't able to do. So Relief Factor has been a real game changer for her, her aunt, other members of our family, Mike here in the studio, and for many other people. You two can benefit. Just try it for yourself. Order the three-week quick start for the discounted price of just $19.95. Go to relieffactor.com or call 800 for relief to find out more about this offer. The number again, 800 for relief or go to relieffactor.com. Feel the difference. Before I made a police state and was framing some of the questions to think about with regard to this uh, movie, and I wanted the movie not to be a mere assembly of things that are going on in society, which many people already know about, not merely a cinematic depiction of those things, but a way of thinking this through kind of taking a page out of Orwell here and raising um, questions and answering questions which haven't even been raised at all. So here's an example of that kind of a question that we deal with in in police state, and that is, uh, how do you get good people to do really bad things? Think, for example, of an FBI agent. By and large, typical guy is not a bad guy. Um, might have a military background, somebody who has a wife and a couple of kids, lives in a three-bedroom house, has the normal struggles of life as everyone else. And yet, what would make a guy like that go into, you know, smash into some old lady's apartment at like 5.30 in the morning and, um, and uh, grab her by the hair and pull her to the ground uh, and then twist her arms behind her back and handcuff her. And if she tries to put up resistance, pull her down the stairs and then yank her into the street where her neighbors come out and gawk at her and humiliate her. What would cause an, an ordinary person to do something so barbaric and so monstrous? You have to answer a question like that because, because when, when our institutions get corrupted as they are now, they're not made up from the top to bottom 
of hideous, horrible people. They're made up of some hideous, horrible, malevolent people who set bad things in motion. But there are also ordinary people and sometimes good people who are recruited into those schemes and made part of the evil machinations of the police state. And that needs to, that needs to be explained. So Orwell in 1984 thinks through, uh, what a full blown police state would be like. Uh, and uh, what the fate would be of an individual. In this case, it's a couple of individuals. It's mainly the protagonist, a guy named Winston. But he also meets this girl named Julia. And they strike up a relationship. And so the two of them are jointly rebels. But uh, as the story goes on, you begin to see that they are turned even against each other. They are forced to give witness against each other. And here Orwell is getting to the the way, the absolutely dehumanizing way in which police states uh, pry, uh, pull family members apart, turn children into witnesses against their parents, make uh, husbands uh, betray their wives and vice versa, not betray in the sexual sense, but betray in the sense of giving evidence against, yeah, yeah, I heard him say that one time. Oh, yeah, okay, 10 years for him for saying that. So so Orwell sees the police state as a complete wrecking ball, not just of society, but of human relationships, of the kind of natural ties that normally hold a society and a community and a community uh, together. Uh, there's so much in this uh, book, uh, 1984, so many ideas and terms that are not only familiar, but they're, they're so applicable to us that we have to be very grateful to Orwell for giving us this kind of ready-made way, because otherwise we'd have to, you know, it's, it's like we have to be grateful for people who invented stuff that makes our lives possible. If they, if, it, if they didn't do that, we'd have to figure out other ways. We don't have air conditioning. You have to figure out another way to stay cool in the summer. And uh, if you don't have the wheel, you then have to, you know, you don't have the wheel to attach to your suitcase. You've got to lift your own luggage and stagger behind it to the to the airport. So with Orwell, we get these, these terms. I mean, even hate week. Think about, think about a lot of this sort of, these sort of diversity propaganda that university students, when they show up at the beginning of college, uh, and I had a freshman orientation for a full week at Dartmouth. Now it wasn't as bad as things are now, but just bludgeoning these kids with, um, with, uh, one ideological nostrum after another. It's like, if you want to be a student on this campus, this is the propaganda you've got to mouth for four years, if not for the rest of your life. It's a kind of hate week of itself. And then Orwell gives us the phrase, the ministry of truth. Think about that. We now have, well, not one, but we have ministries of truth, but they're all linked to each other. So it's not wrong to think of them as a single ministry of truth because they're all protecting the same ideas. They're promoting the same lies. They are, quote, fighting misinformation, but not really. What they're actually fighting is accurate information to be replaced with their misinformation. Orwell is on to all this, and that's why he gives us terms like doublespeak and newspeak. So newspeak is is essentially 
when media reporting, which, by the way, is a very valuable feature of a democratic and a free society, turns into propaganda. Um, and propaganda is Orwell understands. Uh, Orwell would have, I think, really smiled if he had heard Goebbels say that propaganda is something that cannot be measured by the standards of truth and falsehood. Uh, it can only be measured by one standard. Does it work? Does it convince the population to go along with it, even if it's a lie? And basically, um, Goebbels goes, that's good propaganda. If it works, it's good propaganda. And all other propaganda is bad. And, and, and Orwell got there. And Orwell understood that propaganda is so mind-numbing that at the end, a state could even say, here we go, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, and get people, if not to believe it, then to, then to go along with it. Uh, ultimately, of course, the question raised by 1984 and is, is this, um, and that is that the girl says to, um, Winston, she says that, you know, they can oppress us. They can, they can take our stuff. They can even grab us. But they cannot get to what is inside of us. This is this idea that we all have a private individuality, private thoughts and feelings. It's the one thing they can't do. They can make you say anything, anything, but they can't make you believe it. They can't get inside you. And ultimately, Orwell, in this dystopia, in any case, says, well... Actually, they can. Actually, they can. And this, I admit, is a matter of some debate because because I remember Solzhenitsyn saying in the Gulag that there was a part of him that always remained free, that even though he's in a prison camp, even though he's there for eight years, even though he's fully under their um, their surveillance, their control, um, and everything he owns is provided by them. He relies on them for their food, for food. Nevertheless, he says that in his mind and in his spirit, he remains free. And that freedom, Solzhenitsyn insists, cannot be fully taken away. Uh, Orwell, in a sense, disagrees. And by that, I mean Orwell shows at the end of 1984 that Winston does succumb. He, he gives in in the sense that he, he comes to believe it. And, and in the chilling closing line of 1984, he, um, he loves Big Brother. He, um, the, the very force that has been oppressing him, he comes to terms with. And, and this is the closing of the, um, of the book that they are, they're able to get him to not only say that two plus two is five, but to believe it. So the, the full collapse of Winston, not only externally, but also internally is part of the terrifying message of 1984. As I mentioned at the very beginning, we are on the eve of releasing police state, uh, Monday, October 23rd. And Wednesday, October 25th in theaters, there are still tickets available, but you got to get them and I would get them right away. Uh, go to the website, policestatefilm.net, put in your zip code or you can do it by state. It pulls up all the theaters. You can pick out the one nearest you and go see the film with a gang. Go see it with your family. Go see it with friends or with your church or with members of your group or your book club. It's um, that we make these films for the theater. So there's a uniqueness to the theatrical experience. But if you can't go in the theater, the virtual premiere, Friday, October 27th, 
It's going to be amazing. It's out of the Warry studio in Las Vegas, by the way, the same venue where we did the virtual premiere for 2000 Mules. And we'll have some live music. We'll have the full screening of the film. In fact, you'll be the first person online to be seeing the film, apart from the ones who saw it in the theater. And uh, then after the film, there's going to be a Q&A with me and Dan Bongino. And all of this is for the price of a of a movie ticket. So, so this is the way to go. And I think you're going to see that this is a riveting film that's going to give you far more insight. Uh, it brings the police state home. And because uh, it's one thing to talk about it, and I talk about it regularly on the podcast, but to experience it, to kind of feel the hot breath of the police state on your face, um, to use an Orwellian term to feel the well, the boot stamping on the human face. That's Orwell's singular image for, for tyranny. And, um, in that sense, police state is an Orwellian movie, except Orwell's work was a work of imagination. It was a work of, uh, it, it came out of Orwell thinking through developments that he saw, not just, by the way, in the Soviet Union or in Nazi Germany, but developments that he could see emerging even in so-called free societies, Western society, liberal democracies, England, as well as the, as well as the United States. And so Orwell is saying, let's not go there. Uh, and I'm saying, alas, we have gone there. We have followed in the, uh, we have followed exactly the forbidden path that Orwell told us not to go down. And, and Orwell was right that the threat to the police state is coming from the left. Uh, the left says, no, they go, it's coming from Trump. Trump is the real villain and so on. No, uh, I, I think I have this line somewhere in the movie where I say Trump is not running the police agencies of the government. In fact, he wasn't even running the police agencies of the government in the Trump administration. And right now he is running away from the police agencies of government. So right there is a very important clue to who's running the police state. The police state is the the apparatus, the, the, the guys that are controlling and running the police mechanisms of the regime. I mean, think about that. That's true in China. It's true. Uh, it's true to, uh, in Russia. Uh, Putin's running that quasi police state. And, uh, similarly, uh, in America, the threat, uh, to the citizens is right now a threat to the right. It's a threat to Republicans and conservatives and patriots and Christians. It's not a threat to everybody. It's a threat to people who pose a danger to the emerging police state. Those are its deadly enemies. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.